This is Visionary, a show exploring how nuclear powers your world. I'm Mary Carpenter. And I'm Jordan Houghton. Let's jump in. Hey, Mary, and hello, Visionaries. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, Visionaries. We're so excited you're here. It's been so fun these past couple episodes, and it's crazy to think this is our last episode of 2023. I know the t- the time has flown by and I am we both are really grateful for everyone that has tuned in thus far. It's been great getting so much feedback from people around the world. Yeah, I really hope everyone has enjoyed everyone from Miss America to Ricky Ruff who's trying to change the fashion industry to Jesus Nunez who's trying to help stabilize the electricity grid in Puerto Rico. I feel like we've touched a lot of different subjects this season, but hopefully people are walking away with a little bit more knowledge about nuclear and with more questions about nuclear and wanting to get more involved. It's been an amazing ride. I love the diversity of conversations that we've had. We are going to take a short holiday hiatus after this episode, but uh, we'll be back. It's not going to be as long as between seasons of the crown before we're before we're back on air (laughs) oh my gosh it's so painful right now waiting for tv shows that show's always making us wait for years yeah but all tv shows now after the writer's strike i feel like i'll be waiting a long time yes we promise not to make you guys wait too long for our next episode it's gonna be great we're gonna fill in the gap when there's no tv when everyone has watched all of the tv and we're waiting for new tv I know everybody's going to spend their time with Visionary. Yes. If you have run out of TV shows, turn on Visionary. We're, we'll, we will be here for you. But today's an exciting episode. I kind of felt like Saturday Night Live. It's live from Dubai. It's Visionary. Sadly, we're not there, but our guest is. <laughs> and and we're really, we had a really good conversation um, hearing about COP live from the ground. Yeah, so COP28 happening in Dubai this year for our listeners who don't know what those letters are, which, by the way, has included most of my family and friends who are like, you're working on what these last two weeks? COP, what is that? COP stands for Conference of the Parties, which is the United Nations Climate Change Conference that happens every year. And this year is COP28, which means it's the 28th one of these. And it is the biggest one yet. Yeah, it's massive compared to previous years. Uh, We were looking at a chart, I think yesterday, showing that attendees have pretty much, I I believe, doubled this year. More than 80,000 people are attending COP this year, when in other years, it looks like it was under 40,000. So, I mean, it's big interest in COP. It keeps getting more popular. And at the same time, nuclear is becoming more popular at COP. The conversations are picking up as more people realize how critical nuclear is to uh, decarbonization, uh, nuclear is really starting to take a center stage at COP, and it's really exciting to see. Fascinating announcements coming out of COP this year. In previous years, for listeners who don't know, nuclear has really had to fight its way into the conversation and was not a huge part of the dialogue. This year, COP essentially started with a huge announcement of more than 20 nations promising to triple nuclear energy by 2050. And the announcements have just rolled out from there. There's been commitments on fuel and financing, and it's just been uh, 
a really exciting time for nuclear, as we've seen all year, but really culminating in the actions and pledges coming out of this conference. Yeah, we've seen the headlines have been so exciting. We saw Canary Media put out a line this week, COP28 might be remembered as the nuclear cop. So the headlines are really exciting and we're really loving seeing everything come out of COP this week. And our guest has a live take from the ground. So let's jump in and hear from her. Awesome. Love it. Our guest today is Jackie Toth, who is the Deputy Director of Good Energy Collective, a woman-led policy research organization advancing community-centered progressive policies in support of nuclear energy. Toth was previously the advisor for policy and content at the think tank Third Way, conducting survey research and developing policy and communications products for the climate and energy program. A former journalist, we love that, we love it. Jackie reported on federal energy and environmental law regulations and politics at CQ Roll Call and Morning Consult in Washington, D.C. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us today from the ground at COP. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So Jackie is on the ground at COP in Dubai. Jackie, give us first impression. How's it going? Um, is it busy? Get, tell us everything. Yeah, I, I've been uh, I've been making some notes on what I'm seeing that I've called my cop observations. <laughs> uh, we we got in late. <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. I got in December sixth. You know, by December sixth, there have been a lot of great announcements on nuclear. More than twenty countries on December second had set a goal to collaborate on tripling nuclear energy capacity globally by mid-century, um, which is great to see. They're recognizing the role that nuclear already plays um, in decarbonization and how the IPCC's own research shows nuclear needs to triple by then to reach net zero. Today, I was exploring the green zone of Expo City. Um, it is massive. It's even larger than Central Park by a good 20 acres. Oh, wow. Um, there are huge buildings dedicated to issues like the energy transition and mobility, uh, climate finance, with really highly designed booths from different companies and development authorities um, or about different topics. And today, the theme of COP was focused on youth and children. Um, there were so many student groups in attendance, and that was uplifting to see them getting to explore the grounds, get inspired. Um, it was a lot quieter today than I heard it had been, but over 100,000 people have come to COP this year. So the, the energy is, is quite high. That's amazing. 100,000 people is yeah. incredible. Huge number. Yeah, we were looking at some charts, I think, yesterday, Jordan, and looking at how it's increased every year. And this year, it seems there's more people by far than any other year. So very exciting. Jackie, can you share with the listeners a little bit what you mean by green zone, blue zone for people who haven't been before? Yeah, sure. So I don't know if it's exactly split half and half, but anybody um, globally can enter if they have a ticket that you can register for online, the green zone that's fully public. And there are a lot of different um, booths and buildings at Expo City that are accessible to anybody to walk in and learn more about different technologies and organizations and um, attend different panel conversations on the climate challenge. And north of that, connected to the green zone, um, you would need to go through another level of security and have a badge to enter 
um, the blue zone, which is where a lot of the negotiations um, among the delegates around the world take place, and then some other programming on climate. And badges can be few and far between. I know many in our community were identifying who has the badges. And so some folks end up needing to do some badge trading to be able to to enter that zone. Um, But there's certainly a lot to do in both zones. So have you been to other COPs or is this your first one? I haven't. No, uh, before this COP, Good Energy Collective was still very young as an organization. And right before that, uh, we faced the worst of the COVID pandemic. Um, and my focus on what, what was strictly U.S. congressional energy and climate policy as a reporter meant that um, a trip to COP probably wouldn't have been in the cards um, with my editor. Is this your first time in Dubai? Uh, it is. Oh, my goodness. And it, it's astounding. I mean, it's just incredible architecture. I was snapping so many terribly lit tourist photos on my cab ride home from the airport. <laughs> uh, the, the wealth of I mean, the wealth here is very palpable. Uh, it's it's very clearly also an international city. Uh, most signage is in both Arabic and English. Um, it's also very unexpectedly green here. A lot of palm trees. Um, they have a beautiful beach walk um, and a beachfront you can swim in. So, yeah, total tourist town. Have you gotten to do any touristy things or have you just mostly been at COP? No, I mean, uh, nuclear is pretty cool. I haven't done anything very non-nuclear. <laughs> uh, that's, that's as cool yet. <laughs> but I, I hope to make it. Uh, this this weekend to um, the the Burj Khalifa, the world's tallest building. Yeah, um, though cool. I do have it on good authority from a friend that it is actually so tall you can't determine much of what is below you. Um, the planes flying overhead look a lot closer than they typically do. Oh, wild. Okay, so let's talk about nuclear cop since you're in the midst of it. What is what is your impression of nuclear cop this year? I I read a story earlier this week that dubbed it the nuclear cop, which for people listening, this has not been the case at previous cops. So I I would love to hear about what you're seeing and hearing is the buzz on nuclear this year. Yeah, sure. Uh, It's big here this year. I think the tripling announcement on December 2nd, very early in cop, definitely queued up nuclear as a key point of discussion this year. This is the second year, too, that uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency has a pavilion dedicated to nuclear energy in the Blue Zone, where badged um, entrance isn't allowed only. Um, that's where the delegates delegates deliberate on um, the big issues. The White House had put out you know, a fact sheet uh, last week on various announcements the U.S. has been making on nuclear at COP. Um, and in addition to the, that tripling announcement, I mean, the Export-Import Bank and the State Department are making clear that they're ready to play on supporting civil nuclear export projects abroad. So good to see the U.S. Um, really taking a lead role here. And yesterday, um, I saw Assistant Secretary for Nuclear Energy at the U.S. Department of Energy, uh, Dr. Catherine Huff, along with other energy ministers from four other countries constituting what are wonderfully called the Sapporo Five. That's the U.S., Canada, Japan, France, and the U.K. that have committed a massive $4.2 billion over several years on uranium enrichment and conversion to wean us off of Russian uh, uranium fuel and secure the global fuel supply for uranium. So I think we, we would like to continue to see more of an integrated presence of nuclear. I could say, you know, today, hanging out in the green zone, there is um, a great booth from Net Zero Nuclear, an initiative of 
the World Nuclear Association and the Emirates Nuclear Energy Corporation that's been spearheading a lot of the programming around nuclear at and around COP. Um, so hopefully more of that kind of booth and presence um, in future years. But I've, I've been pleased with what I've seen. Uh, for listeners who don't understand the reference to the Sapporo 5, it is not uh, a beer club. <laughs> it, it is based off of the G7 conference earlier this year happened in Sapporo, Japan, and there was initial fuel commitment made there. So this is building off of that, which is why they've they've gotten the Sapporo 5 name. Very important distinction to make. Thank you, Jordan. <laughs> so I want to hear more about what you're seeing for nuclear. Really exciting. You know, we've been seeing all the headlines back home. Why do you think that it's changed this year? What do you think played into that? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the great guests that you've spoken with on Visionary this season have talked about the rationale for why nuclear is having a moment. So I'll be brief here. But most countries want to be energy secure, and most of them also want to reduce their carbon and other emissions to improve national and global health. The geopolitics of energy are real, ensuring energy security is a fundamental goal of most countries' governments. Uh, and the war in Ukraine has definitely emphasized the dangers of relying on bad actors for your energy supply. Um, the tension that sometimes exists between climate action and energy security is much less of a tension for nuclear, which both operates without emitting carbon and is practically 24-7 reliable. It's an attractive technology on both of those key attributes that more and more countries are prioritizing every year in tandem, not just emissions reduction or energy security, but both. And unless or even, you know, if even if your country is blessed with options for abundant hydropower, um, which has some of the similar uh, positive attributes, a lot more countries are looking at nuclear to fill those two roles. So we've seen all these like big announcements, right, that you were just talking about, um, do you feel like change actually comes out of COP or is it more just, you know, talk? I think you see a lot of differing opinions on this. Some folks see the COP convenings as ways for politicians to make climate commitments that they're not necessarily keeping at home. Many wish the summary statements committed to phase outs of fossil fuels by a certain date, uh, which some countries will not agree to. And so those commitments are not included. Others say we've at minimum got to meet and plan toward real climate solutions, and it's important and welcome for the world's leaders to at least try at regular intervals to stretch toward their climate ambitions. Have there been any big surprises for you this year from this COP? This might not be a surprise, but I think what has stood out is how much money goes into putting on a conference like this. The consulting firm McKinsey has a giant booth. The luxury EV maker Polestar had a huge floor space today with three or four cars on display. It really reinforced the sense that climate action is increasingly becoming a business opportunity. And it crossed my mind that some of that money might be better spent on climate adaptation measures. That's a really great point. And I, I haven't been there on the ground, but I imagine and have seen some pictures of the green zone that gives sort of like a huge almost World's Fair conference vibe where you can see companies coming to just tout whatever they're doing in the climate space. 
so everybody knows about it. There was a lot of that. I want to hear more about what you were saying towards the beginning of the interview about today being Youth Day. Have you seen a lot of younger people there and engaged? And are they also interested in nuclear at COP? I didn't get to chat with the students. I was observing their excitement around being there uh, with their their fellow students and looking wide-eyed at just how, you know, large and incredible this convening is in bringing people uh, from all around the world together on an issue that, as we know, youth hold uh, very dear to their hearts, uh, the climate challenge, and seeing, you know, real action in this space. It's really thrilling to see them engaged. And, and I feel like youth engagement is a theme we've seen this season of Fissionary. Uh, we've had a lot of younger guests who are making really global impacts through their work. And I, I'm thinking about John Marshall's son trying to convince him to get into climate research. So I, I, love, I love that that is a component of this conference, that we are acknowledging the power that the next generation of leaders has to make a difference. Absolutely. And at the Net Zero Nuclear Convening off-site, as well as on-site in the Green Zone, there were several nuclear activists from all around the world presenting on a panel, including fellow visionary <laughs> uh, presenter Grace Stanky and um, others like her from um, all around the world talking about the work that they're doing to make nuclear resonate increasingly, like you said, with with the youth, um, but also but also everyone. No, I love it. Fellow visionaries <laughs> representing a cop. I've been following Grace on Instagram since she's been there, and it seems like everyone is so positive, and she's been, she showed this really cool video about nuclear that was super inspiring. And what what's the vibe like on the ground? Is that, am I getting the right feeling through Instagram? People are feeling, I think, positive about the trajectory of nuclear energy at this COP, uh, which as a nuclear uh, advocate has been great to see and great to be in a room with similar-minded folks who are trying to spread the word and advance good solutions to our climate challenge. That's great to hear. I, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got to where you are today. Have you always had an interest in clean energy and climate change? I would call myself an environmentalist light. I tend to vacillate between environmentalism and existentialism. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I, I grew up in a, a pretty small town in Upper Bucks County, PA. My uh, my one acre yard was pretty much my training ground as a young fake biologist. Um, I grew up loving to explore nature, was a dedicated Ranger Rick magazine subscriber. Real ones remember Ranger Rick. And I have always been fascinated with plants and animals. I think moving to D.C. Uh, for college in 2011 changed that a bit, but I was still, uh, you know, I still unintentionally impress my partner sometimes when we'll take walks and I'll point out the various uh, plants and animals. I love when I see just like a random, like a fox or anything like exciting in D.C. Like one animal is just like so exciting because you never see them. Like a de right. I'll see a deer and get excited. It's so <laughs> true, the deer in Rock Creek yeah. Park. So tell us how you got into journalism. Yeah, in the words of the great Bob Ross, uh, it was a happy accident. Bob Ross, what a legend. As I know <laughs> of him. 
My first gig out of college was on the research team at the news firm CQ Roll Call. Um, I've always loved to write and thankfully had some early opportunities in that role to write for the, uh, the then weekly magazine and cover congressional markups on the Hill for their flagship legislative tracking service. And my boss at the time is a wonderful mentor, suggested that I fill an open role on the reporting side covering energy and environment. I was very glad to oblige and uh, started developing a beat in that space. Built up my local DC source base and um, moved over to Morning Consult 2018 and covered advanced nuclear in particular for about a year and a half. How did you go from journalist to advocate? Yeah, I was interested in leveraging what I'd been learning about energy policy as an advocate uh, myself. Also, as a reporter, objectivity, obviously crucial, but I didn't want to feel anymore on occasion that, you know, I was pushing a particular narrative when talking about fossil fuels. I felt a kinship, too, with a lot of the folks I was chatting with, you know, and covering the work they were doing on good climate action and wanted to see how I could contribute. We talked a little bit about this, how we've seen COP coverage of nuclear change. How have you seen coverage of nuclear change since you started your career in journalism? I think in part thanks to, again, this global increasing recognition of the important role that nuclear energy already plays in avoiding additional emissions and can continue to play in avoiding emissions, as well as an increased vocalness among nuclear activists and supporters in helping reporters understand the role that nuclear can play and bringing that nuance to bear in the reporting. I think you've seen that shift start to take place. Do you remember or where did your interest in nuclear start? Yeah, as a reporter, I remember the first story I wrote on nuclear for Morning Consult that really caught my interest and attention. It was on, honestly, an obscure provision in the fiscal 2019 National Defense Authorization Act bill that was calling on the Energy Department to consider piloting deployment of a microreactor. And there was a political discussion going on because the bill indicated that the microreactor could be up to 50 megawatts electric, which as keen listeners of visionary and trackers of nuclear will know, is not the typical understanding of a max size of a microreactor. It's usually 10 megawatts electric or lower. So that was a good first foray into um, the, the mythos that is nuclear policy coverage. So tell us about Good Energy Collective. Give our listeners a little background on what it is and what you guys are doing. Yeah, sure. Uh, Good Energy, we were founded in mid-2020 by three women who came from the nuclear energy advocacy, policy, and innovation space. And they had recognized there was this gap in nuclear policy development, which was in developing good social policy for nuclear most of the policy attention and activity that I was covering as a journalist, it's gone toward innovation and investment policy, uh, which is important, but not the full story when it comes to nuclear. There are key enabling resources and research that can go a long way toward nuclear contributing 
toward a more just transition to clean energy for communities and identifying ways the nuclear industry can work effectively to earn public trust in their operations. Um, so that's what we're that's what we're working on. Likewise, you know, ours is a team of progressives. Um, we work on developing and uh, developing policies and educating around those policies that focus people and their communities. Uh, we're nonpartisan, which means we can work toward real solutions that support communities that host or could host nuclear infrastructure and fuel cycle facilities at the front or back end. We're a policy research nonprofit working at the intersection of nuclear energy and environmental justice. We don't accept any funding from industry, which is important in engaging credibly with folks and groups who still have questions about nuclear technology. Do you think any of the announcements that have come out of COP this year are going to impact your work going forward? Do you see it shifting any of your priorities or supporting things that you have uh, ongoing? Certainly, I'd see. I'd say the announcement for the Sapporo Five to invest over four billion over several years in developing uranium enrichment capacity is crucial to enable advanced nuclear technologies that we want to see succeed to be able to do so. I think the fuels question is one that is taking a lot of our attention as folks who want to see nuclear move forward. And seeing an investment of that size by five key nuclear producers is inspiring and also will hopefully continue to mean that federal policy measures support a domestic U.S. enrichment capacity development here in the U.S. Great. And you mentioned environmental justice. Um, I'm curious how, if you could tell our listeners a little bit about how you see nuclear supporting environmental justice. Yeah, we get that question a lot from fellow nuclear advocates. Speaking generally here, the government and other industries made decisions for decades that marginalized a lot of communities. I encourage always nuclear advocates to balance this question of nuclear and environmental justice as one of both process and the distribution of benefits. Let me take the process part first. The EPA has a working definition of EJ that's all about the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of communities that are impacted by federal policy decisions that impact their health. A lot of overburdened and underserved communities in the U.S. are that way because permitting processes and infrastructure planning decisions were based not on local project support or inclusion, but where land was cheapest or there was water access or energy demand was highest and where local communities had the least power to push back on siting decisions, which were often communities of color. Today, they may want nuclear or other infrastructure development, and they might not, and that's okay. What's key here in EJ is employing a process that empowers all communities to be meaningfully involved in the decisions around their energy mix and lets them arrive at an informed decision. Willing and informed consent with the ability to say no is important from a procedural justice perspective. And importantly, I think being willing to respect when it's a no is going to save project developers time and is still a win from a procedural justice perspective. There are other places that will be interested in nuclear that developers can focus on instead. If we're talking about 
distributive justice, that's ensuring that the distribution of benefits and risks is more equitable across our society and expands those benefits, uh, including to those who have been left behind. So EJ communities should have the opportunity to learn about nuclear and come to an informed conclusion themselves, whether it's something they would like to pursue. One of the topics that we focus on at Good Energy Collective is looking at coal to nuclear repowering. Coal plant communities, which certainly face injustices of air pollution from coal plants, may well be more interested in hosting nuclear infrastructure at their retiring coal facilities than other communities. And polling from Potential Energy Coalition uh, had applied some county data from our 2021 report on the coal to nuclear topic uh, that bore that hypothesis out that you might see more support from coal closure communities that are familiar with hosting large energy infrastructure um, and are looking for a way to help save their towns. We're seeing that in the Terra Power demonstration out in Wyoming in Kemmerer right now. To say that nuclear is a panacea for environmental justice, it does risk reducing the lived experiences of those communities to kind of a soundbite or makes an assumption of what they should want without listening to them first. So we definitely encourage the nuclear industry to listen to communities, including EJ ones, understand what they would like to see as the country transitions to clean energy and identify how to design better and more inclusive projects or approaches based on local knowledge and experience. That's really the vision of a progressive energy future. Thank you so much for explaining that and going into that. I think it's so important that we're seeing demand all over the world. We want the capacity scale up to be done right in a way that everybody feels good about. Our executive director, Jessica Lovering, and Judy Greenwald, executive director of the Nuclear Innovation Alliance, wrote a great op-ed in Utility Dive this year where they talked about um, that it's a, it's a false dichotomy that we can't have a just permitting process and speedy, successful climate timeline sensitive permitting and project development um, at the same time. We, we can do both and we should. You, you've been on the ground at COP. You've heard a lot of the conversations that are taking place. There's a lot going on. The schedules, if anyone listening goes and sees all of the events happening, the schedules are packed for everybody. And I'm curious if there are any conversations you would have liked to see make it in that didn't and are things that still need to be talked about after this COP wraps. Yeah, I think having been here about 48 hours now and having attended a lot of the nuclear conversations outside and inside COP and the Green Zone, I think we would like to see more conversation around what the industry intends to do to address the social acceptability problem of nuclear and make sure that um, we are putting real resources toward policies that enable communities to benefit from nuclear and that leverage all of the interest in nuclear in a way that is positive for folks on the ground. I think just being clear about the importance of relationship building with prospective nuclear host communities is really crucial for everyone from the developer to the advocate to be able to have that conversation about how we're going to take this important message around 
the role that nuclear can play in climate and national security on the ground and the benefits that it can play and provide. So looking ahead to next year, what do you think COP looks like for nuclear and just in general? Yeah, I'm optimistic that the ultimate statement that comes out of this COP will be favorable to nuclear. Last year, it was great to see that it included a reference to low carbon and renewable energy and not just renewable, which means that nuclear is envisioned as part of the climate solution globally. So hoping to see that continued this year or maybe even nuclear's front and center inclusion in a path forward for the, the world to move forward meaningfully on climate. I think next year we'll see the same momentum continue to move into high gear. This year has been so big for nuclear in terms of the global commitment that we're seeing from an increasing number of countries that want nuclear as part of their energy mix. Ones that already have nuclear that want to expand it. Ones that are looking to identifying how are we going to stay energy secure? How are we going to be able to provide electricity to our folks that haven't had it historically and nuclear it looks is looking good and we see that reflected this year and likely in future years to come you're going to get the last word on this since this is our season finale but how would you describe the future of nuclear in one word the joke answers are definitely energized generational or super critical or something like that but i'm going to go with promising that's a really good one Jackie, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, This was such a great conversation um, and enjoy COP. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks so much to Jackie for staying up late in Dubai, taking time to talk to us today. What what an awesome conversation. If you want to learn more about Good Energy Collective, you can find them online at goodenergycollective.org. Yeah, that was great having Jackie on and hearing her experience firsthand. It helps those of us who aren't there understand a little bit more about what's going on. So that was great. A really fun last episode of 2023. A reminder, we'll be on holiday hiatus for a little while, but we will be back in your podcast feeds at the beginning of 2024. Thanks to everybody who has listened so far. We're, we're really grateful for you. If you have any ideas or suggestions for guests or conversations you want to hear when we come back in 2024, please reach out. We'd we'd love to hear what you want to hear. Yeah, we want to hear from you guys. Follow us on uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, X, formerly known as Twitter, at Nuclear Energy Institute. Let us know who you want to hear from, what topics you want to learn about, and what you want to see going into the next season. And we'd love if you could take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to us from. Thanks, everyone. Happy holidays and happy new year. We'll see you in 2024.